All right, we are in Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Don't sigh. We get through it same amount of time. Maybe. Isaiah 49, follow along with your Bible, your device. Um, somewhere online is the transcript if you'd like to read along. I can never remember the address, so I'm not going to tell you. The topic we're going to find there, the unnamed servant tells Israel that he has inscriptions of them on the palms of his hands. The title of the message, who is that masked man? Marked man, excuse me. I blew it now. Who is that marked man? He is the lone savior. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for our time together in your word today. We anticipate hearing from you And we'll know it's your voice, Lord, because it will be filled with love and compassion, with grace and mercy. Even if it's for correction, Lord, you have nothing harsh to say to us because you love us so much and you see us in Jesus, Lord. And so bring correction if it's needed, Lord. Bring conviction. We pray for those here, Lord, who maybe don't know you. Maybe they don't know that they don't know you. Maybe they do. Your spirit, Lord, may he work in their lives, on their hearts, and may they know, Lord, that they're here for a reason, and the reason is that you've drawn them here to meet somebody or talk to somebody or hear something or to feel something, and that they would long for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ where they have the forgiveness of their sins and the empowering of the spirit to live a a purposeful life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said... Amen. I'm going to use my radio voice. Don't, don't dare, don't dare stare. Don't dare stare at the illustrated man. That's a tagline for an awful 1969 movie based on Ray Bradbury's awesome anthology of short stories. A former carnival freak, he is completely tattooed. If you stare at a tattoo, it becomes animated. And so that's how the movie goes. Isaiah introduces us to a servant. In verse 16, the servant says, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Different versions of the Bible translate inscribed as graven, marked, drawn, engraved, and written. Do dare stare at the marked man in these verses. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the Lord's inscribed hands battle for you. And number two, the Lord's inscribed hands buttle for you. Let's take a look at the battles in verses one through seven. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That's how the whole verse reads. The walls have to be the walls of the beloved city, Jerusalem. In fact, the contemporary English version, the CEV, translates this, a picture of your city is drawn on my hand. The servant talks about Jerusalem and the Israelites as if they were one and the same. In the Star Trek original series episode, A Mock Time, Kirk and Spock must... Is someone laughing? This is American culture. I mean, this is how we learn, right? 
I mean, Paul the Apostle, he quoted from Greek philosophers and, you know, poets and uh, people like that. We quote from Star Trek. (laughs) Anyway, in that episode, which played a prominent role in uh, the cable guy with, uh, what's his name? Who's that guy I'm thinking of? Carrie, Jim Carrey, yeah, because he said, he says, we're fighting to the death or they will kill us both. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) Dr. McCoy tries to talk Kirk out of it, but he says, Bones, he's my first officer. He's my friend. I disregarded Starfleet orders to bring him here. Another thing, that's T'Pau of Vulcan. All of Vulcan in one package. How can I back out in front of her? All of Vulcan in one person. That's the idea here. All of Israel in one city, Jerusalem. If you stare at the inscription of the city, you'll see every saved Israelite. That's the idea. It's, it's, it's a placeholder. And, and so the idea is, you know, you, you can't go and say, hey, you know, I'd like to, I've got this great idea. I want to get a tattoo in my palm of every saved Israelite throughout the centuries and in the future. I don't think that's going to fit. Oh, sure, sure, it'll fit. Because all you need to do is draw a picture of Jerusalem, and that stands for them. And then when I... When I see that, I, I see all of them individually in that, uh, in that picture. And so that's what's going on here. And so verse 1, listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. The coastlands is an idiom to describe the limits of the known world. Salvation is going to be offered to the Gentiles, to the whole world. Translators didn't know the word matrix would make us think of sci-fi. It's a synonym for an atmosphere or a surrounding in which something develops. In this case, it is someone developing in the matrix of his mother's womb. The womb was a matrix in that sense. God the Father called the servant before he was born. Albert Barnes wrote, he said, he was not only appointed to the work of the Messiah from his birth, but that he actually had a name given him by God before he was born, which expressed the fact that he would save people and which constituted a reason why the distant pagan land should hearken to his voice. And so they understood that God was the God of Israel, but Isaiah is saying, hey, no, you need to hearken to this voice as well. He's the God of the whole world. He loved the whole world, not just Israel. Verse 2, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Obviously, uh, you know, sharp sword, uh, bow and arrow, the Lord battled for us. In a sense, you could see every moment Jesus was on earth for us as battling for us, as being the second Adam who would succeed where the first Adam had failed so that he could offer salvation and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to the human race. Uh, And, uh, you know, whether it was living in absolute obscurity for 30 years, it's difficult to be bored, isn't it? I mean, do you like to be bored? Do you say, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm home and bored? Uh, you know, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. So here's Jesus. He comes, you know, to save the, the, you know, the human race. And for like 30 years, there's only two episodes in his life that we know anything about. And yet 
he didn't grow restless and, and uh, but it was a trial. I mean, you know, for some, somebody who uh, had been in heaven <laughs> and now he's on earth in some obscure village with very little contact and stuff. And so it's a trial. And then he starts his ministry. And from the beginning, the religious leaders hate him. The devil is constantly coming at him. We talked about this uh, Wednesday night at our study in Ephesians. Uh, and Jake's been talking about it a little bit too in the Gospel of Luke. And so Jesus is battling every minute of every day against temptation to overcome that uh, and whatnot so that he can be the savior of the world. Uh, and it's interesting. It says here, his mouth... His words are like a sword or an arrow. These were spiritual weapons not used to slaughter his enemies in Jesus' first coming, but to pierce hardened hearts uh, with the gospel. You remember when the devil came against him in the desert, you know, in the 40-day fast, uh, you know, the Lord indicated that he could bring angels down if necessary to help him. And after Satan left him for a while, it said some angels did minister to him. Uh, and yet Jesus was committed to using the weapons that the Father was allowing him to use in order to bring peace and to bring the gospel. He didn't come the first time like he's coming the second time, right? I guess that's what I'm saying. You can read about his second coming, his return, in Revelation 19. He's not coming born in a manger of a virgin and all that. He's coming on a great white pegasus or you know, flying horse, I guess, and... Um, with, to wipe out people in Armageddon who are fighting against each other and then against him as king of kings and lord of lords with a great vast army of non-combatants following him. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to think of Jesus in his first coming. He grew up before his heavenly father, concealed from the eyes of the world, protected in the shadow of God's hand, it says. God hid Jesus until it was time God's time and his timing trouble us, or, or maybe it's just me. In our more spiritual moments, we acknowledge that God is always right on time, usually way after our trouble or trial, right? Oh, I see God was right on time. If this had happened or that happened, it would have been a mess, you know, but he's right on time. But when you're in the thick of it, it can seem as though he is late, sometimes even too late. I think that's sometimes because we script how we want things to go. Maybe you're having trouble at work, and so you, you have a script in your mind of how it should go. And then, you know, maybe the Lord shows you something and you repent. You say, you know, Lord, I had a lot to do with this. I don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I wrestle against, you know, spiritual things. And so I shouldn't take this out of my boss. And so starting tomorrow, things are going to be different. And you go in all excited, and things are really different because you've been fired. <laughs> you think, oh, Lord, <laughs> you know, and then you, you, you want to call a, somebody who has compassion, but you think, well, I, I, Gene won't help me there, <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll say, praise the Lord, that more Christians should be getting fired, and uh, yeah, so, and it's true, you know, but anyway, uh, so that's, that's the way it goes with God's timing. Verse three, and he said to me, you're my servant, O Israel in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. The words, you are my servant, O Israel, are why some commentators suggest that this isn't Jesus that we're talking about. 
Other candidates they have are Isaiah, the nation of Israel, the believing remnant within Israel, or King Cyrus or his successor, King Darius or Darius. In verse 6, the servant is called a light to the Gentiles. That is quoted and applied to Jesus by Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verse 32. And so the Bible says itself that, no, this person Isaiah was talking about is not the nation of Israel or Darius or any of these other candidates. It's Jesus. Uh, and it, now we understand that a little bit because, uh, you know, Jesus and the nation are so much caught up together. And so it's hard not to read this as discouragement on the Lord's part, right? I mean, this sounds, sounds like something a discouraged person would say. I don't ever want to go too far trying to describe pure, never sinful emotions. I don't know anything about that. And as long as you and I are in this body of flesh and you know, struggle with sin, it's hard to know which of your emotions are really pure, even the good ones like love. You know, is it all pure? Is there a little bit of lust mixed in there? Is there a covetousness? What's, what's going on? We were just talking a little while ago about how 24 karat gold, right, is only 24 parts per hundred of purity. There's a lot of impurity in that. And so am I really pure in my emotions or what? And so I don't want to go into all of that. At the same time, we can't look at Jesus and say, well, he would never express discouragement because he was the son of God. But he does here in Isaiah. And he says, basically, you know, it seems like I'm a failure. And if you just look at his ministry to Israel in the first century, it does seem like the Lord was a failure. He came to his own to save them, to offer them the kingdom, to set up the kingdom. And what happened? His own received him not. And so he's expressing this. One Sunday morning in 1866, from the pulpit of the London Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon shocked his congregation of 5,000 by admitting, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. He later described his depression as a seething cauldron of despair. On another occasion, he said, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Spurgeon never did conquer his depression. He lived that way his whole life. In his coming, Jesus added humanity to his deity, but then he set his deity aside to live as a man. He was 100% God, 100% man all the time. He, He didn't go through modes of existence. But in terms of his time on earth, he set aside working as, the workings of deity and went as a man under the control and charge of the Father. And being 100% human means he experienced the emotions that we do, yet never sinning. And so he did express discouragement. If you don't think this is him doing that, let's go to the New Testament where he weeps over Jerusalem and says, I wish you had received me because then we wouldn't have to be going in this direction. You wouldn't have to be punished and all of this. And so Jesus could be discouraged. And uh, your ministry is sometimes going to be discouraging. Now, I'm not talking about pastors and missionaries and our supposedly stress-filled, sabbatical-needing lives. 
right? I mean, whenever people talk about the ministry and they start talking about pastors and, and, and all, and you know, your, your pastor is an important but small part of the fellowship, right? There's only a few of us. And, and there's a lot more of you. And the idea here is that we come together for a lot of different reasons on Sunday morning and at other times, lots of different reasons, fellowship and all. But one of the things Paul says in Ephesians is that we come to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. We're equipped by pastors and teachers and such to go out and do the work of the ministry. So what is the work of the ministry? It is believers sharing Christ in the world where God has sowed them and where God has put them. And we come in and we get more of the word and we see things like, we say, wow, this is fantastic. There is a God. He, he's prophetic. The world is going just the way he said it would go. And then we go out more excited, genuinely excited because of the truth of God's word and do the work of the ministry. And some of you are gonna get discouraged because you're gonna think that you're a failure or that you're not doing anything to serve the Lord. Now, maybe you're not, and maybe you are. I, that's between you and the Lord. The Lord is not here to be harsh and difficult with you or to spank you or anything like that. If the Lord comes to you and says, you know, you really do need to let somebody know you're a Christian at work, that'd <laughs> be a good thing since I died for you. Uh, you know, that, and, uh, you'll receive it. You think, Lord, thank you that you're so gracious. I mean, the Lord isn't here to to be harsh and all that, he, but he is here to make sure that we're on track because he knows what's good for us. Then there's just the sense of just general discouragement. I mean, we get illnesses, right? Nobody's, you, you don't wake up and say, oh, praise the Lord, you know, today, may, Lord, may I get cancer today so I can rejoice. Now, if you get cancer today, you will rejoice because, you know, it's, it's in the Lord. But you know what I mean. I mean, you know, so we're not excited about getting sick or other people getting sick or the deteriorating state of the world. I oh, man, it's crazy out there, right? It, we're going down the tubes really fast. We're like a, you know, a person on one of those, you know, rides at, you know, a water park. You're way up there and the thing shoots you out. And you, you miss the ocean, you know, and stuff. And hit dry land. I think I told you one of my, my, uh, you know, pastimes is to watch crazy videos of people uh, doing crazy stuff and a lot of people jumping off their roofs and hitting the concrete or, you know, that kind of thing or going, you know, one guy saw slingshotted and he went past the pond into a tree. I mean, it was just, it's insane some of that stuff. And so, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about at all now, but anyway, it's fun. Uh, just there's, there's, here's another thing. Uh, we like to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We just do. I do. And I think you do too, because the Bible says you do. And when that happens, when you think more highly of yourself, when I do, and things don't go the way I think that they should, I am discouraged. And I think things like, Lord, I don't deserve this. <laughs> they must laugh in heaven, right? But Jesus acting like he doesn't deserve it. What he doesn't deserve is salvation at all. I mean, you should be thankful uh, and all. So, you know, there's a lot of ways that we are discouraged. Perspective and worldview are prescribed when it says, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. So your reward is in the work itself, if it is for God. And the work may not be anything noticeable by anyone else or grand. 
but if, if it's done as unto the Lord, if you go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to do your will, I want to work as unto you, open the door, open a window, do whatever you have to do for me to know that, and, and, and just that's your reward, to be content to be with the Lord. And then it says, and my work with my God. It is with God to the extent that you allow the indwelling Holy Spirit to lead you, that you defer to his wisdom, to his knowledge, and don't try and walk in your flesh and, and uh, you know, become a legalist where you, uh, you know, think that you're, doing right, that you're righteous because of what you do and not because of what he's done. The foil for discouragement or depression or whatever we're calling it these days is to deeply believe the Apostle Paul's analysis where he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I am hard pressed between the two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And so Paul, what he's actually saying is, I wanna go to heaven. I'd rather die and go to heaven. That's ever since I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and realize that uh, I could go to heaven, that's where I want to be. But apparently the Lord wants to keep me here, and so as long as I'm here, I will live for Christ. To die is to gain. I gain Christ because I'll be in his presence, and I'll gain eternal life and all of these things. But you know, if the Lord wants me here, then I'll minister here. But I want everybody to know that it's, I'm okay with going home to be with the Lord. Uh, in fact, I'm excited about it. And that's, you know, in church on Sunday morning, that's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. But out in the world, not so much, because people, even Christians, don't like to think about that. Oh, you're, that's a little morbid. What's morbid about it? Oh, you have a death wish. No, that's a terrible movie from the 80s, but, you know. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, anyway, you know, I, just, no. And so that's the deal. We, if we can think that way and, and gear our lives that way, then this is how we deal with discouragement. I'm not saying we're not going to be discouraged anymore, but this is how we deal with it. And so verse 5, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. The mission of redeeming and restoring Israel to God will succeed. It's still in the future, coming during the time of Jacob's trouble, when all Israel will be saved before the return of the Lord. Verse 6, indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to only raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Jesus came to his own, the Jews, and they rejected him. He turned his followers loose upon the Gentile world, offering salvation to them. It is articulated for us by the Apostle Paul right at the end of the book of Acts, he says, therefore, let it be known to you that salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And that puts us squarely in the church age between the comings of Christ. Have you heard it? If you're a Christian, you have and you've responded to it, but you're also hearing it now if you're not a Christian. 
You are hearing that salvation has been sent to the whole world, that the Lord loves the whole world, including you personally and individually. And so, you know, we don't need to wait until the end of the service to have an altar call for you to get saved. If you're not a believer and you're here, then the Lord is working on your heart to reveal your need for salvation. And so spend time with the Lord right now and receive him and ask him to come into your life. The, Lord, uh, inscribed, uh, the Lord's inscribed hands buttle for you, verses 8 through 26. That's a word. It's what butlers do. They buttle. I think I'm borrowing that from Andrew Lloyd Webber, right, in the, in the uh, musical that my son starred in, uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I think there's some buttling going on in there. But anyway... All of this section is about what the servant is going to do for his chosen nation. We're told what he will do, not what they must do. Now, uh, we like that here. We like to talk more about Jesus doing for you than us doing for him. But we try and be balanced. You know, we look at the scripture and say, well, that's what's being taught here. And we don't want to bring our template of, but you have to do this. Uh, I mean, sh- there's... There's things that we want to do and that we do and are commanded to do and and all that, but not in this section. It's like, hey, this is what Jesus did and is going to do for you. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. Now, we would put this at the end of the time of Jacob's trouble, It is an acceptable time for the Lord to hear them cry out to him. It is for the Jews on earth during that time, salvation and miraculous preservation. After the Lord returns, Israel will be a covenant. This is the new covenant promised Israel involving giving them a heart of flesh to replace their hard hearts of stone. Uh, It's just another way of saying Israel will be saved during this time. The church experiences these blessings now. For example, we have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. And in a couple of places in Scripture, it says that is going to make Jews jealous when they realize that the church has what God promised them first. The Lord's trying to bring them back to himself, and jealousy uh, is one of the things that he uses. And so anyway, we, we share in the new covenant right now, but when the Jews are saved, that new covenant will be uh, applied to all saved believers uh, you know, throughout the millennium and on into eternity. Verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them Even by springs of water, he will guide them. The return of Jews to Jerusalem in the last days after the time of Jacob's trouble will be with great joy. The returnees will be provided with shade and supplies along the way. It says in verse 11, I will make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. There'll be changes in the geography of the earth during those times. And here it seems to make a pilgrimage easier to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's quite a climb. It's always at a high elevation. You always go up to Jerusalem in the scriptures because it's it's on a a peak. And so the Lord says, I'm going to bring that down. I'm going to bring the road. I'm going to level things out a little bit, make it more like a handicap ramp 
you know, that has, that has the proper, uh, have you ever seen the proper dimensions of a handicap ramp? There's like a certain, you know, you might think, oh, that'll do, you know, and stuff. I've seen some ramps, man, there's a church that we used to uh, teach at on Sunday nights in Lemoore, and the ramp was like this. And it was crazy. I mean, you could kill yourself on that thing. But uh, I, I think the real ramp would start here and go to the bathroom, you know, stuff. It's like in increments. And uh, it's, it's, I used to think that was all crazy until you're handicapped. Then you think, yeah, let's go for it, you know, so. Uh, anyway, they come from all over. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, from the north and the west, and there's people from the land of Sinim. And so wherever you look, people will be coming, Jews will be coming to Jerusalem, and they'll be coming from Sinim, which by then commentators will figure out where that is. Uh, nobody knows today. Verse 13, sing, O heavens, be joyful, earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. This, I believe, is literal. Geologists have proven that the earth hums due to a phenomenon known as microseisms, which are low-frequency, long-period seismic waves that constantly reverberate through the planet's crust. Now, we can't hear them, but the Earth right now is humming. I don't know what it's humming, but it's a praise song, right? Uh, and that's exciting, you know, wow. And then in May of last year, a solar-powered balloon mission detected a repeating infrasound noise in the stratosphere. Scientists have no idea what's making that. And so all around us, the universe is singing and humming and getting ready to break out into an amazing chorus of praise. I mean, we think about the, sing the angels singing and we're singing and you know, all these singings going on and, and, and all of a sudden, and now here comes the earth chiming in. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then the atmosphere. <laughs> and, and it's just everywhere around, you're surrounded by praise, right? And so get into it. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Well, they may, but I won't forget you. And so here the Lord says, hey, my supernatural love is stronger than and more faithful than the greatest natural love you can think of. And in that natural love, sometimes there's failures, but not with my love. Verse 16, see, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I don't see how this isn't literal. In ancient times, servants and slaves were tattooed or branded or pierced. It makes sense that the servant of all, the greatest servant, would be likewise marked. Perhaps it's a, a reference to the scars on the Lord's hands from his crucifixion, but no, because that's not at all what these words say or mean. The nails are not an inscription. And the inscription is, seems to be of the earthly Jerusalem, the capital of the earth in the millennium. But there's one on each palm. Are they two identical tattoos, or is one Jerusalem and the other the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to, the, uh, to be a satellite over the earth? Because it seems like in the millennium, both Jerusalems will be active. We know that King David is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem uh, and all, and we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, hovering above the earth. And one of the commentators uh, pointed out that the new Jerusalem 
that is described in Scripture is way too big to come down and just be where Jerusalem was. It wouldn't fit on the mountain at all. It's huge compared to that city. Verse 17, make haste. your sons will make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Jews who had been dispersed by the Antichrist all-out assault uh, in the last three and a half years uh, on earth will make haste to return to Jerusalem. Persecutors who took the mark of the beast and persecuted Jerusalem and the Jews will flee. Now, Isaiah is not writing about the Jews returning to Jerusalem when they were released from Babylon. Only a handful responded to Cyrus's edict and returned to rebuild Jerusalem. They were looking back saying, do you see anybody? No. I mean, these guys are saying, look, people from Sinim, man, that is so far cool. But instead, it's like, I guess nobody's coming but us. And it was difficult rebuilding because all of God's people didn't show up. So this is for the far future. Verse 18, lift up your eyes and look around and see all these gathered together and come to you as I live, says the Lord. You shall surely clothe yourself with them as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. The contemporary English version translates this, I, the Lord, promise that your city with its people will be as lovely as a bride wearing her jewelry. Verse 19, for your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The millennial kingdom on earth is gonna have a good problem to resolve. There are gonna be too many believing Jews for the land. And so I say it's a good problem because it is. And I think Jesus can maybe figure it out, right? The millennial kingdom on earth will uh, be a wonderful thing. And, and um, we can't wait to be there with these folks. We'll be in our glorified bodies. Verse 20, the children you will have after you lost the others will say again in your ears, place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. And then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro, and who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where were they? Modern Israel is a miracle. And because what these guys are saying is, where did all these Jews come from? And how did, you know, in our time, how did the Jews survive as a people? The history of anti-Semitism, you should, when you have time sometime, search out a list or a timeline of anti-Semitism, and it will blow your mind. You know, people say, well, lots of other groups were persecuted, and uh, there's genocide. Yes, absolutely, and we don't want to forget that, but not like the Jews. Uh, I, just randomly, I looked at Ukraine. Uh, have you ever heard of a guy named Bogdan, whatever his last name is? Rush, uh, Chim, 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 uh, never mind. In the 1700s, he and the Ukrainian Cossacks murdered Jews and burned Jewish communities in the Ukraine until Hitler, he had, was the greatest murderer of Jews in history. And here's a guy most of us, I would guess, have never heard of unless you, uh, you know, majored in Cossack studies at the University of California. No, not many people do because for graduation they had to do that dance where you're kicking your feet out. You know, we're almost done. You're almost safe. <laughs> Pastor Gene has gone crazy. News at 11. 
Thus says the Lord God, behold, I uh, lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. These predictions sound too good to be true and the Lord says, just wait and see. Just wait and see. This is what it's going to be like in the time of the end. Let's talk eschatology for just a moment. We've talked before about what's called replacement theology. That's the teaching that physical Israel has been replaced in God's plan by spiritual Israel, which includes the Gentiles. And so there's no distinction now between the descendants of Abraham and the church uh, or people who are saved. But nothing Isaiah wrote makes any sense if you replace uh, Israel with the church. You might try this sometime. Go through your Bible, and everywhere it says Israel or Jacob, write in the church. And in about five minutes, you'll say, this makes no sense and is ridiculous. Uh, and hopefully you will uh, you know, understand that the Lord means what he says. Verse 24, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. And so this is what I mean uh, when I say the Lord is battling, but he's also a butler and so he's a battling butler, right? I, that could be a superhero. That's the kind of, you know, maybe the Marvel comic universe will pick up on that in, in the millennium and say, and now the battling butler. Uh, verse 26, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Nothing like ending on a high note. Uh, all right, so... I guess I have to talk about this. Actually, I love talking about cannibalism. But anyway, uh, we don't have a joke. We don't have a time for a cannibal joke. I'll, I'll sneak that in next time. Uh, what's being described here is that uh, there are people who are resisting the rule of the Lord. And siege warfare is what happened in, those, you know, in the ancient times. And uh, it seems like he's using that as an example. And so in a siege, the invading army would surround the city, cut off all supplies. And so a city could have a week's supply, a month's supply, three months, years. You know, who knows? Uh, we found out during the pandemic that we don't have much of a supply at all, right? I mean, if I were to say, whoa, this just happened, you'd all leave and buy toilet paper like crazy, right? And, and stuff. And so, you know, if you're like, okay, we are surrounded by the Chinese and we ran out of toilet paper, so we give up. You know, we, we don't know what to do. And so, so that's the deal here. And, and in those kinds of sieges, I mean, you do crazy things like eat other people who die. Uh, and and uh, there's even, I think, is it Second Kings? Yeah. In Second Kings, there's a siege of Samaria where two women come up to the king and they say, hey, you need to decide between us something. We made an agreement that uh, we were going to eat one baby, you know, one day and the other baby the next day, and now this gal's reneging. And you're thinking, oh, man, this has gone really far. And so the Lord is saying, look, it's going to be awful. 
for unbelievers and for those who rebel. It's going to be like being besieged in those days. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you don't want to be in that group. Now, you probably made a connection that I have yet to mention uh, something, and that is this question, are we the church ever closely identified with a city? Yes, we are. And the answer is, what is the new Jerusalem? Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels came to me and talked with me, saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. I thought I was going to see the bride, and now you're showing me a city. Well, earlier we dealt with this, right? The city and the person, persons in the city, the citizens are the same. If I see the city, I, I see individually all those people, spiritually speaking. And because, you know, you can't... Uh, you know, it can't be tattooed with everybody. You just have the city. So is the Lord going to have Jerusalem on one hand and New Jerusalem on the other? I don't know. We're not given that knowledge. And most of you are saying, he's not going to have any tattoos. I know it. Uh, but anyway, we have a, if you need a tattoo support group, I, I know of some. But... And so almost everybody does get confused by this, you know, the, you know, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride. Uh, but you know, it, it stems from what we learn in Isaiah, that the Lord loves us so much uh, that he says, hey, the inhabitants of this city, I love you and I know you by name. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it, between you and me, I know you by name and I love you. It's not just because you're a resident of the city. Now, it's not like, you know, do you get mail for occupant? You know, it's like some people think, well, yeah, I'm going to be in there, but I'm, going to, I'm just going to be an occupant, you know. And so here's Billy Graham over here, you know, getting mail delivered to his house in the eternity. And, you know, somebody else over here who's a great Christian. And mine just says occupant, you know, of 2274 Glory Avenue. I mean, you know, and it's, it's an insurance thing probably. You, know, for, you want me to be on Medicare, you know, and stuff. And Have you ever tried to navigate Medicare? Yeah, it's, it's a, not something I want to talk about. <laughs> Jerusalem engraved on one hand, maybe New Jerusalem on the other. That marked man is fully God. He's Jesus Christ. He's your Savior. 